Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, November 23rd, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we will present our commentary on the Gospel of John, Part 9, and it is subtitled, The World of Salvation. Ancient Gnostic Influences adversely infected early Christianity with wrongful ideas that basic words such as seed, father, son, brother, and house, among others, had other than plain meanings when they appeared in scripture or in the prophets or in the New Testament writings. And modern adherence to the organized church institutions routinely cite those writings without giving thought to the actual and literal meanings of such words. This allowed them to accept another false doctrine, which we shall call replacement theology, because the words of all the prophets and apostles could then be corrupted and imagined to apply to whosoever to anyone other than those who are expressly intended by the scriptures. So that in that manner, anyone who would comply with the church institutions could be imagined to be a party to the covenants which Yahweh had made with Israel. So it is also with another word, world which they now imagine refers to the entire planet and to everything in it. Yet that concept is relatively new, and of course nothing could be further from the truth. One cannot be a Gnostic and be a true Christian. In order to be a Christian and truly accept the Word of God in the Old Testament, which is also manifest in Christ, one must accept the meanings of the words of Scripture as they were understood by the writers of Scripture or by those who had spoken those words when the Scriptures were written. Abraham would never have believed in any so-called spiritual seed, but rather he was told that his seed would come out from his loins from where we may expect it to come. To Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets, a son was a genetic descendant. A brother was a man of shared parentage. Seed was the collective of a man's offspring. A tribe was an extended family unit. A father a male ancestor, near or remote. And the words never represented a mere group of disparate and unrelated believers. Not for a moment. For example, a man who was a son was a son first, and then whether he was believing and acted accordingly so that he would be entitled to an inheritance 
was secondary to his being a son. In many ways, Gnosticism is the true basis of the doctrines of the modern so-called Orthodox or Catholic churches. When they make appeals to their traditions found in their so-called church fathers, the true foundation of those traditions is very often found in Gnosticism and sometimes also in Plato or Aristotle, but certainly not in the Christian scriptures. When the other Protestant denominations followed the Eastern Orthodox by parting ways with Rome, they nevertheless retained Gnostic concepts as the basis of their faith. So if identity Christians are criticized, it is because we reject Gnosticism. We believe the words of Scripture according to the meanings which they represented when they were written. And in that manner, we truly seek to understand and believe the word of our God. Doing this, we may also attest that the words of his prophets are manifest in both ancient history and in Christian society as it has historically existed. As we hope to have demonstrated in our presentation of the first nine verses of John chapter 3, which we made last week, which was titled, Origin and Destiny, the scriptures teach that to be born from above is to be born of the race of man which Yahweh had created and endowed with his spirit, beginning with Adam and continuing through Noah and that not every person on earth was born of this same race. Nicodemus did not understand Christ because that concept was not taught in first century Judea, even though Christ expected him to understand it. The modern churches still do not understand that concept, and they would reject it outright if they had heard it, or if they would listen to it. Therefore, they have traditionally interpreted the words which Christ had used in a Gnostic sense, using other than literal meanings, and here in John chapter 3, they often imagine that they describe something else which Nicodemus could not yet have understood, which is the concept of Christian baptism. By insisting on using philosophical meanings of words in order to construct abstract interpretations of scripture, the early founders of the denominational churches, the so-called church fathers, have woven a dreadful web and in it they catch men to this very day. As we explained last week in Origin and Destiny, the Greek word anothen means from above, and it does not mean again. Where it is translated as again or anew in other writings, once in the writings of Josephus and once in the Wisdom of Solomon, we also demonstrated that it actually also means from above or from the beginning in those passages. Then we compared another Greek word, 
katothen, which means from below, and gave examples from scripture of the proper translation of each. There are also other Greek words which demonstrate that this is correct. The Greek word pothen means from where or from some place. The Greek word esothen is from within. The Greek word exothen means from without or from outside. In all of these we see a word which is an adverb or a preposition and which indicates location is added to a suffix and by that the compound word which is formed describes the source or direction of a thing and there are other examples in more modern Greek literature such as dexiothen which describes something from the right hand side the word dexius meaning right I guess aristosothen which is from aristos would mean something from the left. Continuing to summarize what we had discussed here last week in John chapter 3, we saw that Nicodemus approached Christ secretly at night and professed to believe him knowing that he must have been sent from God. So in verse 4, Yahshua Christ told Nicodemus that truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man should be born from above, he is not able to see the kingdom of Yahweh. This answer was in response to Nicodemus's profession, and therefore it was not a suggestion that Nicodemus do anything in order to be saved. Rather, Christ was giving Nicodemus an explanation of why he believed him because he was indeed born from above, even if he himself did not know that. Instead, Nicodemus was confused, and imagining that he had to do for himself something for himself in order to see the kingdom of heaven, to somehow merit salvation. He imagined that he imagined how he might make himself born from above. The denominational churches maintain the error of Nicodemus to this very day, thinking that any man who professes belief with his lips, or who is baptized in water because of that belief, is then somehow born again. But because Nicodemus did not understand, in verse 5, in verse 5 Christ added to his explanation and said truly truly I say to you if one should not be born from water and spirit he is not able to enter into the kingdom of Yahweh the codex Sinaiticus there has kingdom of the heavens rather than kingdom of God then in verse 6 Christ enhanced his explanation and repeated the same concept in slightly different language. This is a frequent occurrence in Scripture, in both New and Old Testaments, and it is called parallelism. The same concept is described consecutively 
in two different ways by which a more comprehensive or illustrative description of the speaker's intended message or meaning is provided. So he said, that which is born from of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born from of the spirit is spirit. With this understanding, we should know that Christ did not describe two separate acts of birth, but one birth having two distinct dimensions, which are flesh and spirit. All men and beasts are born of water, or flesh, which Christ equates here, to being born of, of the flesh. But beasts are not born of the spirit of Yahweh, and neither are all men. We demonstrated last week from the writings of Paul of Tarsus that the flesh of Adamic man is different from that of beasts and that the spirits of Adamic man continue to exist after the death of their bodies. The spiritual body having been sown along with the fleshly which describes its innate nature as a facet of the original creation of man. This we saw in the language of Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 and also in the words of Old Testament writers such as Job and Solomon. Then from the wisdom of Solomon from chapter 19 in verse 6 Solomon informed us of what being born from above means. That it relates to that which comes from God. There, speaking of the children of Israel, the events of the Exodus, and the fashioning of a new society designed to function according to the laws of God, According to our emendation of Brenton's translation, Solomon said, For the whole creation in its proper kind was fashioned again from above, serving the peculiar commandments that were given to them, that thy children might be kept without hurt. After that explanation, Christ began to chastise Nicodemus for not understanding him, that explanation of flesh and spirit. Christ began to chastise Nicodemus for not understanding him, telling him in verse 7 that you should not wonder that I said to you that it is necessary for you to be born from above. Christ was not telling Nicodemus to be born from above, but rather that it is necessary for him to have been born from above. The tense and mood of the verbs which were used indicate a historical aspect and not a future possibility. Christ is speaking in reference to a condition which Nicodemus already had, not of something which he may acquire for himself. The initial response of Christ was to inform Nicodemus 
that his belief was a result of his having been born from above. But being born from above is not something that someone can choose to do for themselves because they profess to believe. Neither can anyone today recreate Nicodemus's circumstances. So they cannot justly apply any of this to themselves simply because they may profess to believe. So in verse 8, Christ explained that the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know from where it comes and where it goes. Thusly are all who are born from of the Spirit. The Codex Sinaiticus has that last clause to read, Thusly are all who were born from of water and the Spirit. We would have agreed nonetheless, as all earthly men and beasts are born from of water, but only those of the race of Adam are born of both water and the Spirit. Many commentators also apply Gnostic ideas to this passage, but what Christ is actually telling Nicodemus is that he has no control over the wind, and not even a perception of its origin or destiny. Neither can man do anything to control his own fate, because man has no control over his own origin, and therefore he can do nothing to change his destiny. In that passage in verse 8, the word pneuma, Strong's number 4151, is wind, which is obviously a correct translation in its immediate context, where in the surrounding verses it is spirit. Literally and primarily, according to Liddell and Scott, the word pneuma is, or pneuma if you will, is a blowing, a wind, a blast, and then, like the Latin word spiritus, or anima, it is breathed air or breath. Numa bayu is the breath of life in the Iliad. Numa afianahi is to give up the ghost or give up the breath of life in the Iliad. Its third definition is spirit the Latin afflatus, which is breath or, metaphorically, inspiration. And then its fourth definition is the spirit of a man. And fifth, as it appears in the New Testament, a spirit of the Holy Spirit. So the word is wind, breath, or spirit, depending upon the context in which it appears. So we see in Latin and in Greek that the words for wind, breath, and spirit are all the same, and so it is also in Hebrew, where neshama means either breath or spirit, and is the word translated as breath in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. Another word, ruach, can also mean wind, breath, or spirit and it is frequently used to describe all of those things in Scripture. It cannot be a coincidence 
that these same concepts are described by the same words in all three languages and had been even before Christianity was accepted by either Hebrews, Greeks, or Romans. It is my opinion that from the earliest times the phenomenon of spirit was described by the same word for wind or breath because man had perceived the spirit and knew that it was present but like the wind or like his own breath he could not actually see it there is indeed a spirit which is more than mere air but it is characterized as air because man could not see it therefore he also associated it with what he could sense that gave him life which was his very breath at this point Nicodemus a leader of the Judeans and a presumably learned Pharisee was even more lost and he exclaimed how can these things be but we shall now see that Yahshua certainly expected him to be able to understand what he was saying in verse 10 Yahshua responded and said to him you are a teacher of Israel and you do not know these things truly truly I say to you that which we know we speak and that which we have seen we attest to and you do not receive our testimony here we see Yahshua using the first-person plural but in opposition to Nicodemus and not in reference to himself with Nicodemus neither could Christ have been referring to himself and anyone else who may have been present such as John or any of the other apostles as they were also merely students and there is no indication at this point that they themselves may have understood his words and often later in the gospel they did not understand him at the beginning Nicodemus had told Christ we know that thou art a teacher come from God so where Christ uses the first person plural here he must be referring to himself and the prophets which are the other teachers who had been sent by God so in reference to the Judeans who rejected him Christ had said in Luke chapter 16 and he said unto him if they hear not Moses and the prophets neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead it seems that historically men have not obeyed the plain word of Scripture Nicodemus being a teacher of Israel as Christ calls him here did not understand that one born of the Spirit of Yahweh in the Adamic man was therefore born from above since as we read in Luke chapter 3 Adam was a son of God ostensibly he did not understand this because he did not diligently study the Old Testament prophets among whom Christ is apparently counting himself here rather he merely followed the orthodoxy of his time
like most people do today. We have already explained from Job that he understood that his spirit was from God. And he said in Job chapter 27 that all the while my breath is in me and the spirit of God is in my nostrils. My lips shall not speak wickedness nor my tongue utter deceit. Likewise Solomon in Ecclesiastes acknowledged that a part of man was the spirit which he had from God, which survives the fleshly body. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 where he wrote, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. In Romans chapter 8, Paul of Tarsus taught that those that had that spirit from God could therefore commune with God, where he spoke, where he wrote, speaking of those who would follow the spirit within them, rather than following their fleshly nature. And he told his readers, expecting them to have done likewise, however you are not in the flesh, but in spirit, if indeed the spirit of Yahweh dwells in you, because it doesn't dwell in everyone. And if one has not the spirit of Christ, he is not of him. But if Christ is in you, if you're a child of Adam and a child of Israel, indeed the body is dead because of fault or sin but the spirit alive because of righteousness because it comes from God. Paul then later said in that chapter of those with the spirit of God for as many as are led by the spirit of God they are the sons of God so they will produce the fruits which God expects. Then to see that Paul noted a difference between the spirit of God which is given to man and God's own spirit. We read a little further on once more. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Men who have not that spirit are those of the other races or mixed races those who are not born from above and over whom Yahweh had never ruled as we shall see from Isaiah. This concept of the children of Israel being the children of Yahweh and of other races of people not being his children is expressed in different ways more than once in Isaiah chapter 63 where we first see a dialogue concerning the vengeance of God. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Now Yahweh answers the questions. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now there is another question. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? And now Yahweh also answers this question. I have trodden the winepress alone, and 
of the people there was none with me for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain all my raiment for the day of vengeance is in mine heart and the year of my redeemed is come none of his enemies have an opportunity to be his redeemed as he is always said that he would destroy them all and I looked and there was none to help and I wondered that there was none to uphold therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me and my fury it upheld me and I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury and I will bring down their strength to the earth so Yahweh is depicted as executing vengeance against his enemies alone furthermore they are judged to be his enemies according to what nation they belong to and not by their individual conduct now the voice changes back to that of the prophet who calls this act of vengeance on the part of God loving kindness who in response to this vengeance then says I will mention the loving kindnesses of Yahweh and the praises of Yahweh according to all that Yahweh has bestowed on us and the good the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses the destruction of God's enemies is a show of love and mercy toward his people for he said surely they are my people children that will not lie so he was their savior in all their affliction he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity he redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old but they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit therefore he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them then he remembered the days of old Moses and his people saying where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him that led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name that led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they should not stumble as a beast goeth down into the valley the spirit of Yahweh caused him to rest so did thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name so now Israel is depicted as calling out to God as they are still his people even in their deserved time of punishment look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory where is thy zeal and thy strength 
the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me are they restrained doubtless thou art our father though Abraham be ignorant of us and Israel meaning Jacob himself acknowledges us not thou O Yahweh art our father our Redeemer thy name is from everlasting O Yahweh why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and harden our heart from thy fear return for thy servants sake the tribes of thine inheritance the people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary we are thine thou never bearest rule over them they were not called by thy name speaking of the house of Israel the tribes the nation Abraham and Jacob we cannot accept a Gnostic definition of children rather children here are genetic descendants and not merely church believers therefore it is genetic descendants who are the children of God who are the redeemed who are his inheritance and who also have exclusive hope in Christ as an aside I saw a good explanation in social media just this morning which said that church believers go to a church but the people of God are the church and that is certainly true Paul of Tarsus was a Pharisee but learning the gospel of Christ he was compelled to study scripture anew and it took him three years as he seems to suggest in Galatians chapter 1 so Paul came to understand these things and wrote describing them in his epistles Nicodemus also a Pharisee did not understand them and now Christ once again insists that he should have where he admonishes him and says if I speak to you about earthly things and you do not believe how shall you believe if I would speak to you about heavenly things Christ was challenging Nicodemus that he should have known these things which Moses Job and Solomon had all expressed in their own writings but in spite of the challenge perhaps Christ really could not have expected him to know these things for other reasons this exemplifies the degree to which the world or the society of Israel had turned its back on God this is evident in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul had written citing the Christogenian New Testament now we speak wisdom among the accomplished but wisdom not of this age nor of those governing this age who are being done away with I don't know why they did not translate that same phrase as world that same word which is appears as world in the King James version of the Bible as age but we will discuss that at a later time perhaps I should have translated it as those governing this world 
who are being done away with. And maybe it would be clearer to people that do not understand this message. The wisdom of this world, those governing this world, Gnosticism, Paul had derided in other places as the wisdom of this world. Rather, we speak wisdom of Yahweh that had been hidden in a mystery, which Yahweh had determined before the ages for our honor, which not one of the governors of this age or world has known, since if they had known, they would not have crucified the authority of that honor. But just as it is written, things which I did not see and ear did not hear, and came not into the heart of man, those things Yahweh has prepared for them that love him. Yet to us Yahweh reveals them through the Spirit, for the Spirit inquires of all things, even the depths of Yahweh. Indeed of men, who knows the things of mankind, except the Spirit of man which is within him. Even so, no one knows the things of Yahweh except the Spirit of Yahweh. Now we do not receive the spirit of the society, but that spirit from Yahweh, in which case we should know the things granted to us by Yahweh, which we also speak of, not instructed in words of human wisdom, but instructed in of the spirit, by the spiritual compounding with the spiritual. Now the natural man does not accept that of the spirit of Yahweh, for it is folly to him, and he is not able to know because it is inquired of spiritually. But the spiritual inquires into all things, and by it no one is examined. And it by no one is examined. I'm sorry. There's a significant difference there. For who has known the mind of Yahweh? Who will instruct him? But we have the perception of Christ. So a man cannot even comprehend the plain word of Scripture unless it is granted to him by God. And unless that man has his spirit, it will never be granted. In the context of heavenly things, Christ continues to admonish Nicodemus. Now no one ascends into the heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The Codex Alexandrinus and the majority text, and therefore the King James Version, add the words, who is in heaven, to the end of the verse. The Son of Man, who is in heaven, but Christ was standing on earth when the words were spoken. Speaking of himself again, in verse 31 of this chapter, Christ says that he that cometh from above is above all. Then in John chapter 6 he asks his disciples, What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Then, after the resurrection, he says to Mary Magdalene, as it is recorded in John chapter 20, Touch me not, 
for I am not yet ascended to my father, but will but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father, and to my God and your God. As it is described in Acts chapter 1, bodily he ascended into heaven, and bodily shall he return. Where we read, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, while the apostles beheld, he was taken up, and the cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. This is a cornerstone of our Christian faith, that our God can transcend his creation, and has indeed interacted in this manner with his creation in the person of Joshua Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul of Tarsus explained that our spiritual bodies, if indeed we are children of Adam, are sown along with our natural bodies. So while the Adamic race is born from above, they have not of themselves come down from heaven. But just as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, when the flesh dies, the spirit returns to God. God put it here in our first father in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. So then, Paul says in that same place, in that same place in 1 Corinthians, that howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. Men experience their natural bodies first, and unlike Christ, they did not exist in the spirit before they were born. While Yahshua Christ was born a natural man, he is also God incarnate, Yahweh God himself manifest in the flesh, and therefore he alone of all men had willfully descended from heaven. Here Christ attests that since he descended from heaven, he alone ascends to heaven. But speaking of the kingdom of God here, which is also often called the kingdom of heaven in the Gospels, the kingdom of heaven is not necessarily in heaven. Furthermore, it is argued that other men have ascended to heaven, namely Enoch and Elijah, while some commentators go to great lengths to show that neither Enoch or Elijah actually went up into heaven, but rather they assert that both men were only moved by God to some other place. However, the assertion which is made by Christ here, does not preclude the notion that Yahweh God took other men to heaven in the past.
So we need not dispute with the plain statement of Scripture which says that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Foolishly imagining him to have been in Tibet or India or some other unholy place. Nor are we compelled to argue with the account in 2 Kings chapter 2 where Elijah and Elisha are having a conversation and behold there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. There are some who claim that because Jehoram, king of Judah, was said to receive a writing from Elijah the prophet, as it is recorded in Second Chronicles chapter 21. That means that Elijah must have simply been moved to a distant land. We only wonder how Elijah mailed such a letter, and what postal service he had used to do so. In reality, in 2 Kings chapter 1, Jehoram is said to have already been in the second year of his rule over Judah, and Elijah is not taken by God until 2 Kings chapter 2. The letter was received by Jehoram over t- at least, at least two years before he died, which is evident from 2 Chronicles chapter 21 verse 19. So Elijah may very well have written the letter before he was taken. The same scripture at 2 Kings chapter 2 says, And it came to pass, when Yahweh would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Yet there was still time for the prophet to travel from Gilgal to Bethel, and to Jericho, and beyond Jordan, so his being taken was not immediate. While we can be certain that he was taken in that manner, that is not precluded by this statement made by Christ here. Christ ascended to heaven. He was not merely taken. We need not accuse other portions of the scripture of being inaccurate in order to understand and accept his words here. The scriptures do not lie. Our minds lie to themselves. Then further admonishing Nicodemus, Christ says, And just as Moses had raised the serpent in the desert, thusly it is necessary that the Son of Man be raised that each who believes him would have eternal life. I remember writing somewhere that all of the, or at least a great number, of the traditions of man found in paganism, found in the Hebrew scriptures, all sort of converged in the life and ministry and death of Yahshua Christ so that we can see that all things are indeed summed up in him. Yahweh must have known 
when he had Moses create this object in a desert and raise it up on a pole for the children of Israel to gaze into, that 1,500 years later he would make this analogy of it and live this analogy of it. So he must have known before Rome, 800 years before Rome ever existed, that there would be Romans and crucifixion in Judea because crucifixion was not the form the normal form of execution in Judea if the Hebrews were in control of the government it would have been stoning not crucifixion but the Romans were in control and therefore it was crucifixion and not stoning In Numbers chapter 21, after delivering the Canaanites at Hormah into the hands of the children of Israel to be utterly destroyed, we read that they became discouraged at the difficulty of the land. And it says, The people spoke against God and against Moses. Wherefore, or for what reason, have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in a wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread, meaning the manna. And Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Yahweh and against thee. Pray unto Yahweh that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. The serpent on the pole seems, to us at least, to be a curse, being a serpent. But instead it turns out to be a blessing for the people who had fallen ill, yet gazed upon it as they were instructed. Originally, in verse 9, the fiery serpent is called a seraph, Strong's Hebrew number 8314. I'm sorry, originally in verse 8. But then in verse 9, it is twice called a nakash, Strong's number 5175, which is also the same word translated as serpent in Genesis chapter 3. The word seraph, or seraph, is related to a verb, seraph, Strong's number 8313, which means to burn. In the plural, it is translated as seraphims in Isaiah chapter 6, in verses 2 and 6. The word nakash can also refer to an enchanter or an enchantment, and is the same as a Chaldean word for copper which we can see in the entries 
for a group of words which are all spelled alike in Strong's numbers 5172 through 5175. They are all Nakash. And one is to enchant, and another one is an enchanter, meaning the verb and a noun, and another one is a word for copper. So the seraph of Numbers chapter 21 verse 8 was very likely only a symbol of burnished brass and not necessarily a serpent as we know a snake. The seraphim of Isaiah were not serpents. The seraphim of Isaiah chapter 6. They were some other weird winged creature. The seraph was called an enchantment or a nakash because that was the purpose for which Moses had made it to get people to look on it and be healed of the bites of the fiery serpents. But it was not necessarily formed like a serpent or a symbol of a serpent as we know a serpent today. 1,200 years after the time of Moses, the Septuagint translators interpreted the word seraph as serpent and wrote in Greek ophis and ophis is a snake or a serpent. So in Greek Christ followed this interpretation but he was not necessarily asserting that the symbol which Moses had fashioned was actually a serpent. It is arguable. Fittingly we know from the gospel that those responsible for seeing to it that Christ was killed were indeed serpents even if that was the will of Christ himself having been determined by Yahweh from the beginning. As a digression there is certainly an etymological connection between the English word serpent and the Hebrew seraph for which the plural as I have said is seraphim. The word seraphim appears several times in the Ethiopic manuscripts of one Enoch along with cherubim and ophanim, which in the King James Version are the wheels of, Gen of Ezekiel chapter 10. The wheels are called ophanim, a wheel being an ophan. In one Enoch, these are all some sort of heavenly or angelic creatures. For example, where in 1 Enoch 61.10 it says and he will summon all the host of the heavens and all the holy ones above and the host of God the cherubim, seraphim and ophanin and all the angels of power and all the angels of principalities and the elect one and the other powers on the earth and over the water and whenever you see a presumably Hebrew word ending in I-N. That's actually the Aramaic form of the plural. But where the word ends in I-M, that's the Hebrew word, the Hebrew form of the plural. So that's the difference there. That's why when you read one Enoch, you see a lot of plurals that end with an N 
instead of an M. I do not generally trust the accounts in the Ethiopic Enoch. While admittedly I have not thoroughly researched the Enoch manuscripts of the Dead Sea Scrolls for the same thing, neither have I noticed it, and I would certainly be inclined to reject the notion that the seraph is both a serpent and a heavenly being. But just as Moses had raised up this burnished brass symbol in the desert so that the children of Israel would receive temporal salvation from their trial. In that same manner Christ had to be raised so that those same children of Israel looking to him would have eternal life. This is because as Christ told his adversaries as it is recorded in John chapter 10 my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. And he came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Only the children of Israel are ever described as being his sheep, or as lost sheep in the Old Testament. Here is the divide which identity Christians have with the traditional post-Nicene orthodoxy, as well as the modern denominational Christians. Are the promises in Christ for the children of Israel, who were predestined to believe and accept the gospel? Or are the believers those who accept the claims of the modern churches, and somehow become mystical Israelites, once they are esteemed to have been born again. Following many of the so-called church fathers, the Nicene and post-Nicene orthodoxy had accepted what we, ref what we refer to as replacement theology and understood certain terms in scripture according to Gnostic or so-called spiritual meanings in order to accommodate their belief. But this is not how the writers of the scripture understood the words which they had used. The King James Version translates verse 15 to read that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life where we have instead that each who believes in him would have eternal life. The phrase pas hopistuon is not properly whosoever believeth as other Bible versions also have it to read there. The Greek word pas is basically all or the whole according to Liddell and Scott, but they also attest that it was used as Hecastus, Strong's number 1538, which is every, every one, each or each one, every one, not everyone, there's a difference, every one. This is how it must be interpreted here, since it is an adjective 
which is used to modify the singular article and participle. Ho pistuon, a phrase which forms a singular substantive, a group of words which are used as a noun, that may be translated as the believer, hence each believer or each one who believes, as it appears in our text here. So where Christ says, each who believes, before imagining that this could refer to anyone at all, or to whosoever, we must ask ourselves, each of whom? The context of each who believes is defined elsewhere in Scripture, in places such as Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, or Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. The chapter of Jeremiah, which explicitly promises a new covenant, begins by stating, at the same time, this is Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 1, at the same time, saith Yahweh, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. The time referred to is described at the end of chapter 30, where the prophet describes the anger and vengeance of Yahweh upon the wicked. Then, later on, in chapter 31, we read, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. In the words of Christ himself in Matthew chapter 24, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, we read, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Those sheep, those lost sheep, were already lost. The Israelites scattered in ancient times and were described in Ezekiel chapter 34 and also in Isaiah chapter 50 where we read in those days and in that time saith Yahweh the children of Israel shall come they and the children of Judah together going and weeping they shall go and seek Yahweh their God they shall ask the way to Zion with their faces to the wood saying with their faces in that direction, saying, Come, and let us join ourselves to Yahweh in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. The new covenant is that perpetual covenant. And no matter what any other people profess or believe, the purpose of Christ was only for that specific people. Each who believes of those lost sheep of Israel shall have eternal life. In Isaiah chapter 43, we read another prophetic appeal for the children of Israel to believe 
once the time of their salvation arrives. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. This must be the hundredth time. I've cited Isaiah chapter 43 in my New Testament commentaries. I will probably cite it again before they are completed. This redemption is only for these people, regardless of who believes it. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. These people have a promise of being saved. Other people do not. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. They have no promise of being saved. Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba are examples of those who would not be saved. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. Only the children of Israel matter to Yahweh. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east, and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Keep not back. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yeah, I have made him. Yahweh did not take credit for creating the other races, and here admits to creating Israel alone, and calls them his sons and daughters. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes, and the deaf that have ears, a reference to the children of Israel in their disobedience. They were scattered for their disobedience. Let all the nations be gathered together, and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this, and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses, that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is truth. Israel was promised to become many nations. And it is these whom Yahweh says that he is assembling. So we cannot imagine to add any others to it. Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God, and neither shall there be after me. Jacob is his servant, referring to the children of Israel collectively, which we are told seven times from Isaiah chapters 41 through 49. 
the children of Israel are first referred to as nations in the Song of Moses at the end of the book of Deuteronomy because they were promised to become many nations. I, even I, am Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. When Israel receives their Savior, according to this chapter of Isaiah, they and they alone were to accept and believe him. Over the centuries after the apostles of Christ brought the gospel to Europe and the adjacent regions, the nations which descended from Jacob had all accepted Christianity, and, in all but a very few cases, they accepted it without force or compulsion. So Martin Luther, in chapter 13 of his treatise on the Jews and their lies, exclaimed that it is a great, extraordinary, and wonderful thing that the Gentiles in all the world accepted, without sword or coercion, with no temporal benefits accruing to them, missionaries didn't bring them food and government checks, gladly and freely, a poor man of the Judeans as the true Messiah, one whom his own people had crucified, condemned, cursed, and persecuted without end. Of course, Luther was not aware of the difference between Edomites and Israelites among the Judeans. But the important point here is that Luther, writing in the 16th century, only about 30, 48 years before the King James Version of the Bible was published, when Christianity was almost totally confined to Europe, and when he knew very well of all the parts of the earth which were inhabited by people who were not Christians, had exclaimed that already by his own time the Gentiles in all the world accepted the gospel of Christ. If the Gentiles in all the world already accepted the gospel by the time of Luther, and if, as Luther referred to them frequently in his writings, there were many people outside of his world who were not Christians, then we must ask, what is the world? There is a fuller article of this title at Christagenia, which I will not present here. I will only summarize concepts from it. But this is especially pertinent to understanding the next statement which Yahshua made to Nicodemus. For Yahweh so loved the society, in the King James Version, that's the world, that he gave his most beloved son, or the most beloved son, some manuscripts have his, in order that each who believes in him would not be lost, but would have eternal life. Indeed, Yahweh has not sent the Son into the society in order that he would condemn the society, but in order that the society would be saved through him. 
there are many aspects of this passage which we hope to address, but we will not address them all immediately. Here, for the time being, we will focus on this word, society, for which the King James Version has world. According to the American Heritage College Dictionary, the third edition, in its appendix on Indo-European roots, the word world comes from a compound of two Old English and Germanic words, were or man, which we see in the phrase were guild or the price of a man, and old or age. We see that in our word old or in the popular New Year's Eve song Auld Lang Syne, which is, I believe, good long time or good old time or something like that. So world originally meant age of man, coming from words that meant man and age, and had nothing to do with the planet itself upon which man resides. We would contend that the original translators of the King James Version still understood this ancient meaning of the word. For that reason, three different Greek words were translated as world in the King James Version, which are ahion, cosmos, and oikumene. And ahion, the source of our English word eon is an age. So the King James translators show that they understood that a world was an age, not a planet. The word oikumene basically means living space or dwelling place from the word oikos, or house. The Greeks used it in reference to the area of the earth which they, or anyone else in particular, had inhabited, depending upon the context. We still use the word world in this context today. When we use phrases such as the Roman world or the Greek world, and that was how oikumene was generally used by ancient Greek writers. In their intermediate lexicon, Liddell and Scott have for oikumene the inhabited world, a term used to designate the Greek world as opposed to barbarian lands. So in Roman times, the Roman world. Finally, there is the word which we have in the Greek of this passage in John chapter 3, which is cosmos. This is the word from which we get the English cosmos, a sort of synonym for the universe, or the word cosmopolitan, or even cosmetic. The Wikipedia article for cosmos, cosmetic being an adornment, a decoration, 
which is also what the Greek word cosmos may mean. The Wikipedia article for cosmos reveals the meaning of the word as the Greeks had used it, where it says in its opening lines that cosmos is used at times when the universe is regarded as a complex and orderly system or entity, the opposite of chaos. The word cosmos means order. And to the ancient Greeks, it had nothing to do with the planet as we know it. In Acts chapter 17 at Athens, certain men describe Paul of Tarsus and his companions as these that have turned the world upside down. That word world being cosmos. Yet by that time, Paul had only preached the gospel in a small part of Europe and Anatolia. In chapter 2 of Luke, we read, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. That word, world, being from this word cosmos. Of course, Caesar only had authority to tax the Roman world. So we again see that the word cosmos did not describe the entire planet. To the ancient Greeks and Romans, the cosmos was the order or arrangement of the oikumene, which included the planets and constellations of the heavens, by which movements they regulated their daily lives. For this reason, we translate the word as society, which is the organization or order of a body of people in the land which they inhabit. We have just cited Isaiah chapter 43 at length. There, and in other chapters of Isaiah, we see prophecies that explicitly state that the salvation and redemption which is in Christ is exclusively for the ancient children of Israel, the genetic people of the original twelve tribes and their descendants. Then we saw in Jeremiah that the new covenant was promised exclusively for those same people, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In Romans chapter 4, Paul of Tarsus described how Abraham's seed, through Jacob, was promised to become many nations, and assured his readers that therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, and not merely to those who had kept the law. A couple of verses later, Paul expressed the nature of the promise again, and said that Abraham was promised, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And he explained that this had indeed come to pass.
So Paul took the gospel to the nations of Europe, to nations which did not exist at the time when the promise was spoken, because they had indeed come into being from Abraham's seed over the course of the 2,000 years between Abraham and Christ. The traditional orthodoxy of the denominational churches imagines that many nations became Abraham's seed. But the scriptures in both testaments say the opposite, that Abraham's seed became many nations. Identity Christians understand that and can identify those nations in a manner which is fully consistent with the prophets and the apostles of Christ. In Ezekiel chapter 18, we see what Yahweh God purposed to save as Israel was cast off in punishment for their sins. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith Yahweh God, and not that he should return from his ways and live to repent of his sins? Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit, for why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies, saith Yahweh God. Wherefore turn yourselves and live ye. There is a similar passage, a similar message in Ezekiel chapter 33, from verse 11. Say unto them, As I live, saith Yahweh God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil ways and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So Paul wrote to the Romans in the closing verses of his epistle in Romans chapter 16. Now with ability you are to stand fast, in accordance with my good message and the proclamation of Yahshua Christ, in accordance with a revelation of mystery, having been kept secret in times eternal, but being made manifest now, in other words, it's not a secret any longer, through the prophetic writings, in accordance with the command of the eternal Yahweh, for the submission of faith to all the nations, the nations, particular nations. In discovering that Yahweh alone is wise, through Yahshua Christ, to whom is honor for the ages, truly. The nations he referenced were those same nations, which came from Abraham's seed, which he described in chapter 4 of that epistle who were the subjects of the promises. Of course, the Romans were indeed a portion of that seed. Speaking prophetically of the time when Yahweh will swallow up death in victory and wipe away tears from off all faces and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, as we read in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. In Isaiah chapter 25, 
I'm sorry, in Isaiah chapter 26, we then see a prophetic picture of entry into the kingdom of heaven. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open ye gates, open ye the gates, that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, just like the children of Israel in the desert stayed their mind on the serpent raised on the staff, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts in thee. Trust ye in Yahweh forever, for in Yahweh, in the Lord Yahweh, is everlasting strength. For he brings down them that dwell on high. The lofty city he lays it low. He lays it low even to the ground. He brings it even to the dust. The foot shall tread it down, even the feet of the poor, and the steps of the needy. The way of the just is uprightness. Thou, most upright, does weigh the path of the just. Yeah, in the way of thy judgments, O Yahweh, have we waited for thee. The desire of our soul is to thy name, and to the remembrance of thee. With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yeah, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Let favor be showed to the wicked. Yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of Yahweh. Yahweh, when thy hand is lifted up, they will not see. But they shall see and be ashamed for their envy at the people. Yet the fire of thine enemies shall devour them. Yahweh, Thou wilt ordain peace for us, for thou hast also wrought all our works in us. O Yahweh our God, other lords besides thee have had dominion over us, this speaking to the children of Israel, in their scatterings, in their, in their dispersions, in their captivity in a time when they were lorded over by other gods and other nations. But by thee only will we make mention of thy name. They are dead, they shall not live, they are deceased, they shall not rise. Therefore thou hast visited and destroyed them, and made all their memory to perish. Thou hast increased the nation, O Yahweh. Thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou hast removed it far unto all the ends of the earth. This had already happened to Israel, both up to and in the time of Isaiah, as the Assyrian deportations were still ongoing at his time. Yahweh, in trouble, had they visited thee. They poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them. Like as a woman with child that draws near the time of her delivery is in pain 
and cries out in her pangs. So have we been in thy sight, O Yahweh. We have been with child, we have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth. In other words, they labored greatly and couldn't save themselves. Neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen, all of the enemies of God, whose judgment is prophesied here and in the surrounding chapters of Isaiah. Thy dead man shall live, speaking of Israel, together with my dead body, the people of Israel collectively, shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people. Enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, Yahweh cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood, and shall no more cover her slain. Here once again we see that the children of Israel shall learn righteousness. And they are described as the world here. They shall learn righteousness at the expense of their enemies, at the expense of the tyrants who had ruled over them in times past, and at the expense of the inhabitants of the world whom they expect to fall. In the end, it is depicted that Yahweh God himself will destroy these others in his indignation. Yet the children of Israel shall be saved. This we see as we proceed with Isaiah chapter 27, where we read of Yahweh's vengeance against the wicked inhabitants of the world and of Yahweh's own plan for the world. In that day, Yahweh, with his sore and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent. And that is an idiom for the serpent people in the world, not a sea monster. Even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea, that dragon that is in the mass or the sea of the world's people. In that day sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. I, Yahweh, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. Because once Leviathan is gone, we have the children of Israel left. Fury is not in me, who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them, I would burn them together, or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make 
peace with me. He shall cause them that come out of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and blood, bud, I'm sorry, and fill the face of the world with fruit. This is the world which Christ came to save. The other races are described as briars and thorns, symbols of useless plants, and Israel shall fill the face of the world with fruit. Israel shall blossom and bud. This is the world which Christ came to save, as this is the world, or the order, or arrangement, which Yahweh God sent down from above. As we read in our corrected translation of the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 19, verse 6, For the whole creation in its proper kind was fashioned again from above, serving the peculiar commandments that were given unto them, that thy children might be kept without hurt. Throughout the entire book of the Wisdom of Solomon is a comparison of the world created by God and the world corrupted by both men and devils. This is instrumental in understanding this passage of John as even in the writings of the apostles there is a world which Christ came to save and there is a world which is under the power of the devil and which Christians are commanded to loathe. In 1 John chapter 5 verse 19 where we also see once again what is, what is meant what it is meant by being born from above We read, For we know that each who has been born from of Yahweh does not do wrong. Born from of Yahweh. They are the people born from above. Rather, he born from of Yahweh keeps himself, and the evil one does not touch him, that thy children might be kept without hurt. We know that we are from of Yahweh, and the whole society, or world, lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lieth in wickedness, as the King James Version has it. Then in James chapter 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Christ did not come to save devils. Not at all. In John chapter 17 he says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world but for them which thou hast given me for they are thine. I pray not I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil they are not of the world because they were born from above even as I am not of the world so in the beginning 
in the beginning of the Book of Wisdom. In Wisdom chapter 1, we read, For God made not death, neither has he pleasure in the destruction of the living. For he created all things that they might have their being, and the generations of the world were healthful, and there is no poison of destruction in them, nor the kingdom of death upon the earth. For righteousness is immortal, but ungodly men with their works and words called it to them. For when they thought to have it their friend, they consumed to naught and made a covenant with it, because they are worthy to take part with it. Speaking of death, of destruction. This is further explained at the end of Wisdom chapter 2, where we see that this had nothing to do with Adam and Eve, at least at the beginning, where we read, For God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity. God created all things, but he did not create bastards. We cannot blame God for the products of our sin. Then in Wisdom chapter 9, we see the connection between the world which God created and his commandments. And bastards, of course, are violations of his commandments. Through envy of the devil, death came into the world, and they did do hold of his side to find it. That devil was already corrupting the world before Adam and Eve. In Wisdom chapter 9, we see the connection between the world which God created and his commandments from verse 1. O God of my fathers and Lord of mercy, who hast made all things with thy word and ordained man through thy wisdom, that he should have dominion over the creatures which thou hast made, and order the world according to equity and righteousness, and execute judgment with an upright heart. Give me wisdom that sits by thy throne, and reject me not from among thy children. For I thy servant and son of thine handmaid am a feeble person, and of a short time, and too young for the understanding of judgments and laws. The handmaid would be Israel, ostensibly. For though a man never be so perfect among the children of men. Yet if thy wisdom be not with him, he shall be nothing regarded. Thou hast chosen me, this is Solomon, to be a king of thy people and a judge of thy sons and daughters. Thou hast commanded me to build a temple upon thy holy mound and an altar in the city wherein thou dwellest, a resemblance of the holy tabernacle which thou hast prepared from the beginning. And wisdom was with thee, which knoweth thy works, and was present when thou madest the world, meaning the concept of wisdom, which Solomon personifies, and knew what was acceptable in thy sight, 
and write in thy commandments. These commandments were only intended for the children of Israel, as we read in the 147th Psalm. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh, David being happy that the other nations never had the law. The intention is that Israel, keeping the commandments, would fill the face of the world with fruit. This is also evident in the last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, where there is described the tree of life, which bear twelve manner of fruits, ostensibly representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Seeing the connection between Israel, the law, and the world which God created, we turn to Wisdom chapter 18, where it is speaking of Moses, and we read, For then the blameless man made haste, and stood forth to defend them, and bringing the shield of his proper ministry, even prayer, and the propitiation of incense, he set himself against the wrath, and so brought the calamity to an end, declaring that he was thy servant. So he overcame the destroyer, not with strength of body, nor force of arms, but with a word subdued him that punished, alleging the oaths and covenants made with the fathers. For when the dead were now fallen down by the heaps one upon another, standing between, he stayed the wrath, and parted the way to the living. For in the long garment was the whole world. This is an important passage. For in the long garment was the whole world. And in the four rows of the stones was the glory of the fathers graven. And thy majesty upon the diadem of his head. Unto these the destroyer gave place, and was afraid of them, for it was enough that they only tasted of the wrath. Solomon prophetically described the whole world as being represented by the long garment and in the four rows of stones. This is a reference to the breastplate of the high priest described in Exodus chapter 28, where we read in part from verse 3, And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And these are the garments which they shall make a breastplate, and an ephod, and a robe, and a broidered coat, a mitre, and a girdle. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron thy brother, and his sons, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And then, going on to verse 8, And the curious girdle of the ephod, which is upon it, shall be of the same, according to the work thereof, even of gold, of purple, and blue, and scarlet, and fine twined linen, and thou shalt take two onyx stones,
Moses, engrave on them the names of the children of Israel, six of their names on one stone and six and the other six names on the rest of the rest on the other stone, according to their birth, the whole world was represented by the long garment and in the four rows of stones. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, shalt thou engrave the two stones with the names of the children of Israel. Thou shalt make them to be set in ouches of gold, and thou shalt put the two stones upon the shoulders of the ephod, for stones of memorial unto the children of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before Yahweh upon his two shoulders for a memorial. But that's not all. Now we get to the four rows. And thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment. Verse 15. With cunning work. After the work of the ephod shalt thou make it of gold, of blue, and of purple, and of scarlet, and of fine twined linen. Shalt thou make it. Four square it shall be, being doubled. A span shall be the length thereof, a long robe, and a span on the breastplate, and a span shall be the breadth thereof. And thou shalt set it in the settings of stones, even four rows of stones, the first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and a carbuncle. This shall be the first row. This also equates to the foundations of the city of God in the Revelation. And the second row shall be an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row a ligure, and an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row a beryl, and an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold with their enclosings, and the stone shall be with the names of the children of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, every one with his name shall they be according to the twelve tribes. So, according to Solomon, the whole world are the twelve tribes of Israel. It is Yahweh God's intention that Israel fill the face of the world with fruit at the expense of all others. This is the world without end, as it says in Isaiah chapter 45. But Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. So Paul said in Acts chapter 26, I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Unto which promise? Our twelve tribes serving instantly, day and night, hope to come. There are other promises which assure us that all of this shall come to pass as this is the world which Joshua Christ came to save not the planet. This world, the whole world, represented by the four rows of stones on the breastplate of the high priest. 
This is the world which Joshua Christ came to save, and God shall not fail. If Yahweh God is willing, we shall discuss other aspects of this passage when we resume our next presentation on the Gospel of John. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of white folk everywhere. And good night.